Hello and welcome to the Investing on the Go podcast. I'm Juliet Schooling-Latter and today I'm joined by Chris Sinjan, manager of the elite-rated AXA Framlington UK Midcap Fund. Hi, Chris. Um, you invest mainly in the UK's medium-sized companies, those in the FTSE 250, which is uh, commonly thought of as being very domestically focused. Is this true today or, or is that a misconception? Uh, it's true to some degree, but I, personally, I view it as a misconception. I think most people view the FTSE 250 index and so the mid-cap uh, section of the market as very much a UK domestic-facing group of businesses. In reality, about half of the income, the turnover generated by these businesses actually is generated from outside of the United Kingdom. So there are lots of domestic companies, yes, but there are also lots of international companies as well, uh, serving markets out in uh, you know Far East Asia, uh, the US and across Europe as well. Hmm. And this sort of mid-cap area um, has been sort of shunned a bit since the Brexit vote, hasn't it, over worries about, you know, the eventual deal or no deal. Uh, and now coronavirus on top of that. Um, but the performance hasn't actually been as bad, I think, as a lot of people think. The FTSE 250s sort of rotated, hasn't it, between sort of outperforming large and small caps and underperforming them. Um, why, why is this? Um, and how has your fund sort of managed to outperform? Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, actually, if you look over the last three and five years, um, the FTSE 250 in aggregate has actually outperformed uh, the FTSE all share. However, you're right, within that, there's been some years where performance has been very different. Uh, 2016 is the most extreme example of that. And that really saw the impact of uh, the Brexit vote, which surprised the market. And really, what happened at that time was uh, banks uh, assumed that the UK economy would go immediately into recession. That would be a significant, uh, significant contraction in GDP. And sterling weakened considerably as well at that point. Now, on the basis of what we just said around sentiment, and yes, the FTSE 250 is more exposed to the UK economy than international, that had a profound effect on the index itself. So we saw a dramatic fall in sterling, an expectation that the UK economy would contract. And as a consequence of that, the FTSE 250 as an index fell quite precipitously. Certainly a very different performance to the FTSE 100, which is made up of more international companies, companies albeit 30% of the all share is actually made up of UK earnings itself. So sterling had a big impact. That surprise uh, Brexit result had a big impact uh, as well. Now, it hasn't been one way by any stretch of the imagination. As I said, three to five, three and five years, the mid-cap has outperformed the FTSE all share. Uh, And that has been driven, I think, principally, uh, once again, because of the uh, superior growth in earnings and economic output you see from FTSE 250 uh, companies themselves. It's also worth bearing in mind the FTSE 100 and the all share by extension uh, is made up or is, is dominated by a few very big sectors, <coughs> oil, pharmaceuticals, tobacco, banks, for example. So <coughs> when you see 
significant movements in the oil price, it disproportionately affects the FTSE 100 and therefore all share relative to the FTSE 250. In terms of outperformance or how, how the fund has performed relative to the, to the index, uh, that has all come about because, or pre- predominantly come about because of stock picking um, and the effect of stock picking. So companies like Depra Pharmaceuticals, which uh, supplies veterinary products, uh, Future, which is a media business, Rent-A-Kill, which some of you may have heard of before, which is a pest control business. They've all been good compounding companies that have increased their economic output over this time. And so, yeah, so the outperformance has come through stock picking. Since the fund was launched in March uh, 2011, um, before fees, the fund has outperformed the index by 96% cumulatively. And of that, 81% has come from stock picking. Well, that's great news. Great news for our, for our, our investors. Um, yeah. And uh, you also invest in some AIM holdings, don't you? Um, yeah. What, what is it that you, you like about this particular part of the market? Yes, there are lots of misconceptions about AIM. And I, and I think um, it, it, things have changed a lot since, say, the tech uh, and dot-com boom, for example, when a lot of the index was made up of loss-making businesses, um, a lot of very early-stage companies in the technology area, and, and uh, similarly, some very early-stage pre-revenue capital-intensive businesses in the mining area were also very well represented. If you look at the index, the AIM index now, um, its cumulative market capitalization is nearly £100 billion. Uh, and there are 187 companies at the last count with a market capitalization of more than £100 million. And in fact, 18 companies have a market capitalization of more than £1 billion. So that, you know, these are profitable businesses, and that would put them actually into the FTSE 250 were they to move from AIM to the full list. So companies like Fevertree, uh, Boohoo, which uh, both companies which people may well have heard of, and, and companies like Breeden, which is an aggregate producer, uh, uh, Clinogen in healthcare, which you perhaps wouldn't have heard of, those businesses all have market capitalizations of over £1 billion. So there are lots of uh, profitable, growing businesses. I apply exactly the same investment philosophy and process to AIM as I would for a fully listed business. But outside of these well-established businesses with, with significant market capitalization, there are also lots of interesting, innovative businesses. And I think if you focus just on the all share, then you miss out on the opportunities that are there. So if, if you think about computer game companies in lockdown uh, and as, as an industry that has taken masses and masses out, globally out of its distribution costs by um, distributing games digitally, that is an area of the market that has done well over lockdown, has seen significant growth in, in demand. And as an industry, uh, it is certainly growing and compounding. And it is much more represented in AIM than it is on the main list. There are also other great innovative companies within tech, uh, within uh, technology, uh, within healthcare. We have a holding in uh, a company called Creo Medical. You know, these are businesses that really are on the, are on the, on the, on the forefront of technology, very big end markets, uh, well-capitalized, interesting technology, uh, and, and really do have a very interesting future ahead of them. Yeah, you, I mean, you mentioned uh, Boohoo and Fever Tree 
there, which are probably names that our listeners are familiar with. Um, how long have you held them? Um, I've held both those roles not for a great deal of time. Um, uh, I've bought them within the last two years, uh, so taking advantage of stock market falls. I mean, they've been companies I've followed uh, for a long time, or both of them since float. Uh, so I've used market pullback as an opportunity to add, to, add uh, to, to, to buy the holdings and add to them as well, as I've, which, is, which is typical of me. I and mean, I'm a long-term investor. My investment horizon is three to five years, but my average holding period at the moment is around seven years. So I'm very happy to be patient with these businesses, let them develop. And in my mind, I don't mind you know, if the market capitalization expands, but to my mind, the risk reward has actually improved in the favor of the equity holder. Then I'm happy to buy it at a later date rather than necessarily taking all the risk of buying these companies at float. Yeah. And um, what's your outlook for UK companies over the next sort of year, 18 months? Um, with this extraordinary situation we find ourselves in, you know, we've been, just been told that the economy's contracted about 20%. Uh, how concerned are you about this and, and you know, the uh, Brexit, ongoing Brexit negotiations? Well, yeah, it, it is it is concerning and to, to discount it and ignore it would be would be um, reckless to say the least. I mean, as a general observation, um, you know, we are seeing a severe economic contraction in the UK and in fact globally um, as a direct result of uh, the impact of lockdown. Um, essentially, governments have put their economies, and, and if you look at the UK, it's absolutely true here, the government has effectively put the economy uh, to sleep on a temporary basis. Um, people have been asked to stay at home. Uh, companies have uh, effectively uh, shut up shop in many cases. If you think about companies in the eye of the storm, companies like uh, in the leisure industry, restaurants and pubs, they've not been able to open for a while. So you've seen this extraordinary situation where companies have seen dramatic falls in their turnover as a consequence of direct action to contain the virus. Now, there has been a response on the other side uh, from central banks, from governments, and from banks themselves who've all worked hard uh, to my mind, to protect the productive capacity of the United Kingdom and our economy. And this has all been about when the, when the virus broke, when lockdown was put into place, you saw extreme effect on the cash flow of businesses. So what you've seen is a, a, a liquidity event and a liquidity shock and a response from central banks, governments, and, uh, and, uh, and equity holders as well to prevent that liquidity crunch turning into a solvency crunch. So the, everyone has been working hard, and I think some of, the, um, uh, some of the support measures put in place, for example, in the furloughing of staff, have been very successful. And as a consequence, a lot of the productive capacity of the United Kingdom has been kept in place. Now, if you want the economy to recover quickly, then the economic capacity has to be maintained. Because if you start to lose the ability of the company to of the country, sorry, to employ and to grow, then it will have a profound longer-term effect on the economic output. And that 
will naturally result in higher levels of unemployment, higher levels of business failures. So I think we're in a very interesting point at the moment. When you look at the stock market, we've seen very logical behaviours in terms of protecting the balance sheet of businesses. Uh, so working capital has been retained within companies. We've seen dividends being deferred or cancelled. We've seen banks waiving um, um, uh, covenants events so that companies are not breaching the banking covenants and therefore the banks are not coming in and taking control of companies or putting unnecessary uh, penalties on companies. Uh, and, and as a consequence uh, and as a consequence of that, I think we've moved from this event of concern over solvency into a point where investors can start to look forward at the recovery and what the economy, certain sectors and businesses will look like post what will turn out to be a transitory event. Now, we don't know how long this is going to last. We don't know the shape of the recovery. We can see that the recovery is starting to happen. Uh, people are using China as a blueprint. Uh, we can see uh, uh, the government in the United Kingdom talking about, for example, reducing social distancing from two metres to one metre. And we can start to think about the effect that might have on a number of uh, on a number of businesses. So we're in this very interesting period. Now, it's not all doom and gloom. It doesn't mean that all businesses are failing. All businesses are finding life very difficult at the moment. There are areas of the economy that are doing well and there are areas that are doing badly. And I think the effect longer term of, of, uh, of COVID, we don't know. But at the moment, a lot of the speculation, a lot of the thought is around how the economy may change going forwards and how behaviours may change going forward. So there's a lot of talk about increasing working from home, uh, the effect that it would have on property. Um, for example, if, if suddenly you only need uh, you need 20% less office space and that doesn't bode well if you're the owner of the property. Uh, in, increasing uh, data usage, uh, therefore everything that goes around that, so broadband capacity, um, uh, you know, the protection of data for individuals and for companies as well. So that so there are so there are lots of areas that that, that may well benefit from this, and, and indeed, a lot of the trends we've seen over the last few years may well be catalyzed and accelerated as a consequence of this. Uh, you know, there are plenty of people who, for the first time, have been forced to shop online and have found that it actually works very well. So that that acceleration of e-commerce, of online shopping, and everything that comes around that in terms of the logistics, the reverse logistics, I think will continue to accelerate. So that it, it, it's it's the 20% uh, contraction of the UK economy is deeply concerning. It's been manufactured. We wait to see how well the company bounces back given that productive capacity has been kept in place. Yeah. So what do you think are the big opportunities for investors uh, in, in the mid-cap space at the moment? Um, I, it's, the, the outlook is, it remains uncertain. You, you, you did ask about Brexit before and um, I, I didn't answer that, so apologies. But um, yeah, Brexit is Brexit and the outcome of Brexit, again, is another unknown. 
Uh, from a personal perspective, I think you know you hope that pragmatism leads to a free trade agreement that is supportive of business. Uh, from a business perspective, they just need to know the rules of the game, and they can get out there, uh, start trading, um, and and put the, the the work at how they need to adjust if indeed adjustments need to be made, and can just uh, crack on with things. Uh, Going back to the big opportunities in this space, I just don't think they've really changed. I, I, you know, as a, again, as a sort of general concept, I think well-capitalized businesses who can grow turnover, ideally organically, uh, who's growing profits that, um, uh, that are generated by that growing turnover turn into cash, and if they can compound that turnover, compound the, compound the profits and the cash flow generation, then over time, that should lead to very good equity returns. Uh, you know, I often use a stats from a study done by Boston Consulting Group, but they showed over 10 years that around 70% of your return comes from the turnover growth of the underlying company. And to my mind, that's uh, illustrative of the increasing economic output. Over 10 years, almost none of your return comes from movement in the multiple, so the PE uh, that is put, a, put on a business. Um, because to my mind, over the short term, and, and we're seeing a lot of this at the moment, capital flows will dictate uh, the short-term movement in the multiple that the stock market's prepared to put on a company. So I don't think anything has changed, really. Those companies that can compound their earnings uh, are, are certainly the ones I think you'll get the best return from. Uh, and those are the ones I'll continue to focus on. You need to feel comfortable that there's sufficient uh, liquidity within businesses at the moment where the insolvency risk is taken off the table. And then as ever, as a stock picker, you know, it's a stock market that, um, you know, we often say it's a market of stocks. Uh, we all uh, tend to focus on the headline numbers of how indices are moving, but under that, there's always a huge amount going on. So as things become clearer, I think it'll become, become clearer as in the effects of COVID become clearer. I think it will become clearer those companies that are likely to win and lose, the haves and the have-nots. Uh, you know, we can see air travel significantly hit at the moment, uh, leisure companies, uh, property companies, uh, whether they're on the high street, which really is, is just an acceleration of what we've seen over the last five to 10 years, all the demand for office space falling. So, you know, also, you know, the market is now pricing in five years with no interest rate rises. Well, you know, that's not a very good background uh, for banks. So there will be those areas of the stock market that, that will be affected uh, negatively. Uh, but on the other side, there are those companies that will will benefit. You know, we've mentioned a couple of uh, thematics earlier on, but that theme to work from home, I, I'm, I'm slightly sceptical whether we'll work from home as much as we think we will longer term. Uh, but, you know, working from home, the need for more broadband, the importance of data transfer, uh, healthcare, um, you know, and, and, and companies that will profit from that. So if more people are working from home, I've no doubt there's a market for software that will remotely measure the effectiveness of people's uh, output, productive output when they are working from home. So as ever, the world is constantly changing. That leads to opportunity inevitably, uh, but also heartache for other parts of the market and other companies, unfortunately. Yes. Interesting stuff. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Chris, so much for your time today. My pleasure. If, 
Um, if you'd like more information about Acts of Framlington UK Midcap, please visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscri- subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast. Please note that these are unprecedented times and markets can react very quickly to news. The views expressed are at the time of recording and could change. And remember, we've been discussing individual stocks to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these stocks at the time of listening. <laughs>